most of us remember a time when high schools had wood shop or metal shop. How many of you remember that? How many of you took wood shop or metal shop? Yeah, be proud, be brave, raise your hand. Uh, in our day, it was sort of relegated to the, those of us that weren't very smart. You went to wood shop. Uh, but um, usually had these big burly guys that taught the class, and they were a lot of fun. The uh, first few days, it was just rules. Um, and there's a reason for that. Before you hand a power saw, a welding rod, or a blowtorch to a teenager, it's a pretty good idea to lay out some rules about how you're going to use these tools that could kill somebody and blow up a room. When Paul writes his letters, his epistles, he uses a similar formula. In fact, almost every letter he writes is 50% theology or doctrine, and then 50% practical application. It's true of every one of his letters, pretty much. In the book of Ephesians, for example, chapters 1, 2, and 3 is doctrine, theology. It's about some pretty high stuff like election and adoption and predestination and being called. And then verse, chapters 4, 5, and 6 are very practical. They're very doing-oriented. Grammatically, chapters 1, 2, and 3, there's not one imperative or directive verb and in chapters 4, 5, and 6, there are 35 imperative and directive verbs. So he lays a foundation, we might say the theology or the doctrine, and then he applies it. He gives us how-tos, practical injunctions, commands. The reason this is important is in the Christian life, when you trust Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you. When he indwells you, he begins transforming you and me into what we are not. That's called sanctification. The problem with trying to just do the right thing in the right way at its baseline is no more than legalism. As Lloyd often says, the Spirit's power has to control us, and he even prays for that very frequently in his prayers. A young man confronted me many years ago and said, Michael, you cannot make your flesh any better. And it messes with our mind. Because we think we're going to be more like this mosaic Christian we've got. I'll read my Bible more, I'll pray more, I'll trust more, I'll be more faithful, whatever it is. And we create this, this Michael, this persona, that if I was like this, if Michael was more like this, then Michael would be a better Christian. And we have to erase that concept and understand it's Christ's power indwelling us, the resurrection power, His Holy Spirit indwelling us, to change us into what we are not. It's a, it's a big mindset change for people that do things for a living. We go out and we check boxes, we read books, we, we do this, we pray more, we do a Bible study, all good things. But true change can only come from the Holy Spirit's transformation, not being more disciplined, not making our flesh better. We've been thinking about walking in wisdom, and I want us to look at Ephesians chapter 4 and 5 now and in the future in some, some high level and detail to see how Paul applies this, but it's a mindset I want you to keep present as we talk about this passage because we have to understand the foundations the theologically. Simply put, Christ's Spirit is the one who empowers us to apply these things. It's not merely the flesh Otherwise, we fail. Otherwise, we're just polishing the brass rails on a sinking ship. We want change, not just behavioral change. 
Now, if you open your Bible to Ephesians 4.1, I want to show you five times the word walk appears. The simple word walk. Paul uses it intentionally, and I want us to look at that in, uh, this, this weekend and in a weekend to come. So you'll see chapter 4, verse 1. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. If you drop down to chapter 4, verse 17, you'll see it again. Walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. A comparison and contrast there. Then chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love. Then chapter 5, verse 8, walk as children of light. And then finally, chapter 5, verse 15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. So if you're a person that takes notes, underlines, circles, and so forth, godly people do that, uh, you can circle the word walk or outline it so that you'll see it next time. If you're like me, you can read it and study it, and the next time you look at it, you have forgotten, you have observed those things. So that's why I draw a lot in my Bible. So keep in mind, this is a mindset. It's not just doing it's being the person Christ wants us to be in his spirit. And by applying those things, then we're changing and being transformed. Let's look, first of all, at Paul's identity and his motivation. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. First we get his identity, and then we get his motivation. He identifies himself as a prisoner. One of Paul's uh, common self-defining terms is a bondservant, a bond slave, a servant of Christ, a prisoner of Christ. And we know, if you read a little bit of your New Testament, that there are the so-called prison epistles, where he wrote uh, while he was in prison, the prison letters. So he's writing and identifying himself not first here as an apostle, but as a prisoner. Secondly, his motivation. He implores the reader. He implores the Ephesians. And by the way, what was written for the Ephesians applies today. He's imploring you and me. I implore you to walk in this manner. He's pleading with us. He's urging us. We think about the motivation of raising children when they're young. You, you implore them to pick up their room. You implore them to obey you. You implore them to get, uh, learn good habit, do good table manners. When they become teenagers, you plead with them to make right decisions. When young men and women are in college, we implore them, don't drop out. Finish college. Don't take a year off to find yourself. Stay in there. We implore people to stay in their marriages, right? Paul's imploring you and me. As a prisoner, I implore you, walk in a manner worthy with that you have been called. Now, studying this the past week, one of the things that the personal application that struck me was I would never self-identify as a prisoner or a slave of Christ. I just wouldn't do it. And it struck me that the apostle who's speaking the very word of God self-identifies as a prisoner. Instead of my, my mind runs down a trail and I go, you know, what am I enslaved to? To whom or what enslaves me? And I hate to admit it, but it's not my service to Christ. 
The world, the flesh, and the devil, money, sex, and power, those ever-looming umbrellas are always hanging over all of us. And our propensities, our yearnings, our longings, the things that tug at our hearts and our souls, those are the things that draw us into. Look at how we spend our time will tell us a great deal of what's important to us. Where we spend our money tells a great deal of what's important to us. How we're stewards of what God gives us tells us what we're enslaved to. To whom are you enslaved? To what are you enslaved? And would we ever self-identify, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I often wake up in the morning and truly is a prayer of mine. I say, Lord, help me not merely serve myself today, but to serve you. I have to pray it every morning because I forget. But I don't think I've ever thought of it in the terms that the apostle describes himself. I am a slave of Christ. John Stott writes, he is both a prisoner of Christ and a prisoner for Christ. Bound by chains of love and in custody out of a loyalty to the gospel. Bound by chains of love and in custody because of his loyalty to the gospel. So we begin this section of Ephesians 4 with his identifier, I'm a prisoner. And I implore you, walk in a manner worthy. He's not setting himself up high as an apostle, saying walk like me as an apostle. He said, I'm a prisoner. And I implore you to walk like the manner with which you're called. Let's move on and look at this manner, verses 1 and 2. Now, when you were in grammar school, you may have had to write some topic sentences. And uh, probably learned those about third or fourth grade. And you probably got them like I did, mostly wrong, because teachers are that way. Sorry. Uh, and then you finally learn what a topic sentence is, and then about that time it doesn't matter anymore. Uh, but chapter 4, verse 1 is a topic sentence. He's encapsulating everything he's going to tell you in this next two chapters in this one phrase, walk in a manner worthy according to the call with which you have been called. So we need to he needs to explain, we might say, what does that manner look like? What do you mean, Paul, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which I was called? And so that's how he'll explain it. The NIV and their interpretive rendering, I think, helps a little bit. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. They lose some of the Greek words, but they're truncating it. Live a life that's worthy of how you were called. Now, let's talk a little bit about this term called because there's a lot of confusion on the street about what it means to be called as a Christian. From the Bible's view, there are three calls. The first call is the call of the prophet. A very specific call. Moses, uh, Elijah, um, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hosea. They hear from God very specifically what they're supposed to do. Sometimes the instructions are very detailed, as with Moses. Sometimes they're pretty brief, as with Jonah. But God speaks to a prophet and calls them. And by the way, almost all of them are very reluctant to do what God asks them to do. The second call, and the one that's the biggest call, we might say in the Bible, is the call to salvation. That God's calling his people to himself. I believe in a universal call, meaning whosoever will respond to the call. So when you hear the story, when I hear the story of the life, death, 
burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he died in your place, on your behalf, instead of you, instead of me, and by trusting in, by believing in Christ and Christ alone for our salvations, salvation, we are given a free gift called eternal life. That's the gospel. And even in the saying of those words, that's a presentation of the gospel of Christ, and God can use those words to call his people to himself. That's the biggest call in the Bible. There's one other call in the Bible, and it's a call to discipleship. Some Christians differentiate these, some don't. I tend to. Some lump that all Christians are disciples. I tend to be in a different camp that says, no, not all Christians are disciples. Because we saw the masses following Jesus, and when it got a little hard, the disciples fell away. And he speaks to the twelve, are you two going to leave? Later in Paul's life, he writes some cryptic things by a man named Demas we know very little about. Demas, having loved this former world, I'd like to write a book one day called Demas, The Way of the World. Uh, he didn't want to follow Paul and his mission anymore. He wanted to go the way of the world. I believe Demas was saved. I believe the disciples who followed Jesus were saved. But they didn't take on discipleship, being a student, being identified with Christ, wanting to grow in sanctification, wanting to learn more. We might define it. It's hard. It's unclear. But a disciple, uh, Lloyd and Bill, liked the word self-feeder. That you can open the Bible and feed yourself. You can read it without being provoked or having to have to or made to. That you want to be in the Word. That you want to pray. You don't necessarily feel guilty and have to pray. You want to pray. You'll stop throughout the day in prayer. You want to read. You want to grow. You want to learn more. You can't not learn. That's a student. And that's a disciple. And none of us were always that way. Something happened in our spiritual journey where we said, I want to grow. I want to know more. I want to be the person Christ wants me to be. And that's how I would differentiate the call to be a disciple. And that's where we're shedding some things of life off because you can't do everything and follow Christ as a disciple. It's incompatible. You don't have the time for it. So I would differentiate the call to the prophet, very clear, the call to Christ, the big call, and the call to discipleship. All that to say, the calling he's referring to here is the call of salvation. Live in a manner worthy, according, honoring, accustomed to what you were called. Live like your salvation. Reflect your salvation. So we have a new life in Christ. His Spirit indwells us, and we're called to be a different people. Now he's going to explain this manner in the next verse, too with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Let's look at them briefly one at a time. Humility was a term the Greek mind of that day loathed. They didn't like the idea to be humble. That was subservience. That was lower than humanity. And they didn't like that word. But Jesus is fond of turning the world on its head. Philippians 2.8, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Luke 14.11, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility is a trademark of the believer in Christ. Humility is putting others as more important than yourself. Someone showed me this link um, months ago called People of Walmart. 
We can have a support group. How many of you actually looked at the website? People, oh, be, be proud, be brave, own your sin, raise your hand. I did. I looked at it for a long time. And it's, it's really kind of grotesque, isn't it? It's, kind of, it's just kind of wrong, right? Um, the people of Walmart. And I'm looking at that, and I'm laughing along with some other people. I won't identify them. Uh, watching the computer with me. And, and then it struck me. I'm not any better than any of these people I'm making fun of. I, I was convicted. Humility is a funny thing. Pride is a spiritual cancer. Pride has metastasized in our brains and in our hearts, and we think we're important. And interestingly, one of the few things God hates that's so clearly identified in the Bible, he hates pride. Humility is the antithesis of pride. Humility is seeing others as more important than yourself. If you're like me, gentlemen, when you come home, those remote controls belong in your hands and only in your hands and always in your hands. And one of the reasons I have so many of them and haven't consolidated to one is because I don't want people to know how to use all that stuff. <laughs> it's mine, baby. It's my chair, it's my mail, it's my remotes, it's my news program, leave me alone. Consider others more important than yourself. Secondly, gentleness. Here it's really self-importance, technically. To be gentle is to be aware I'm not that important. It's a close cousin to pride, but the way gentleness is used in the Bible is I'm not that important and even though I'm strong, I can control my power. We think of gentleness in a lot of ways. This is not sheepishness. This is not a person who's a wimp or a person who is cowering. Again, don't necessarily raise your hands, but some of us, I have been very guilty many times of putting on the power suit, literally and metaphorically, to go into a meeting. Whether there's been a problem or trouble or we're dealing with some employer we've contracted or I've got to fire somebody, I can put on a power suit and I can go in there and I can control that room. Some of you alpha folks know exactly what I'm talking about. I can go in any situation and control that room. That's not gentleness. My youngest daughter, since she was a little tiny pixie, rode horses. Now, I'm not like afraid of horses, but they're big animals, and they weigh a whole lot more than me, and they're a whole lot stronger than me, and from what I understand, they're pretty smart animals, and they know if you're apprehensive, or if you're anxious, or you're afraid of them, right? They know that kind of stuff, and this little tiny girl, and what is it? Most, mostly girls ride horses. What is this? It's like Beauty and the Beast, you know? <laughs> little tiny girl controls this horse with bridle, bit, and saddle, and this horse is massive in their strength. When my wife has on a handful of occasions browbeat me into going on a dude ride with our family and the ranch wrangler comes out and looks at me and says, you ever ridden? I say, no, I'm an idiot. And they give me the oldest, biggest horse they have. It's impossible to do anything wrong with so that he nor I get hurt. That animal is no less powerful because it has a bridle, bit, and saddle. 
It's power under control, isn't it? It's domesticated. It's trained. And you watch the, 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 the muscles on those animals, like under a sheet, just ripple with strength. They're amazing animals. But they're gentle to a person that knows how to handle them. Gentleness is power under control. It's, I'm not that important. It's used of an elder in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 5. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach when wrong, patient when wronged, and listen, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. With gentleness. Again, Galatians 6, 1. Uh, you who are spiritual, restore such a one with a spirit of gentleness. I've been in meetings with some of our elders, and sometimes they're unpleasant meetings. We're dealing with some pretty sad situations, and I've, I've seen some elders who are masters at wisdom and gentleness ask the right question. I've gone into meetings wanting to put the power suit on and control this thing and make a decision and be done with it. And I've watched an elder come in and just ask one question and dismantle the whole bomb. It's masterful. Strength under control. Gentleness. That's a characteristic of a godly man. A man who can able to teach, patient when wronged, can go in and gently disarm that situation and love a person who's hurt, who's hurting, who bad things have happened to him or her. Living a worthy life, worthy of our calling, means first that we're humble, secondly that we're gentle, thirdly that we're patient. Um, patience, of course, is the ability to endure provocation, to sit and wait. The King James language was long-suffering. Great word, long-suffering. You can suffer a long time. We have a support group here today. It's called the Impatient Group. Hi, my name's Michael. I am very impatient. Who would raise their hand with me? I am very impatient. I hate to wait. I have a hard time with incompetent people. <laughs> Some people aggravate me. I get aggravated. I pushed wrenches in a former life, and so you don't want me as a customer if you own a shop. Because when I bring my vehicles in, I know as much as they do about my cars. I say, I want this done. I want this done. And I come back, and they said, well, we tested and did and did. I said, no, 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 no. I said, I wanted this done. We had to test it. I didn't authorize you to test it. I said to do this, and they strike my bill. They go like this to my bill. They don't want me as a customer. Because I know a lot about their subject. And the problem with that is I can, I can play that poorly. I can abuse that information. And to be a patient person as opposed to a controlling person or an impatient person, if it weren't bad enough that this passage is just about the body of Christ, in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul tells us, be patient with everyone. Oh, come on, Paul. Can't I be impatient just once in a while? Be patient with everyone. A great point. You can't make your flesh better. If you're like me and impatient, you can, oh, just be patient. Oh, okay. Why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I think of that? No, I'll just be patient. I'll wait happily. I leave. I don't wait. 
So he says, you're impatient. I go, no, I'm letting other people get ahead in line. We're out of here. We'll go somewhere we don't have to wait. Be glad you're not married to me. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can change that. I have to cooperate with him. He won't force it on me. Five, showing tolerance or bearing with. Living worthy of our calling means being humble, means being gentle, means being patient, means being tolerant or bearing with. Tolerance is probably a poor word because the way our culture has muddied that word. So the idea of bearing with or enduring or putting up with others, we might say. Again, Paul's talking about the body of Christ. Easiest way to understand that, of course, is in your home when your children are what? Terrible twos. Or terrible teens is what we really should talk about, right? How many of us parents have pulled our hair out raising children and going, we're imploring our children to do the right thing in the right way, and of course they do the wrong thing in the wrong way every time, right? And we expect them to listen, we expect them to obey, and we're, we're hammering, we're teaching, we're loving, we're encouraging, we're giving them opportunities, all the things I never had. Boy, I play that card a lot. I never had these opportunities, you know, like that's going to help. Oh, thanks, Dad, thanks for giving me the opportunity to have. I'm going to be a better son. I'll be a better daughter because you never had that opportunity. Where do I get off thinking it's going to change the way they think? And then when I get a little space from it, I realize, you know what? They're still growing. Why do I expect them to act like an adult when they're not an adult? That's a great shoe leather application of bearing with other people. Living worthy of our calling, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with others, last in love. Notice, in love. The affection, the esteem, the seeing others' worth, that they're important, that we do this sacrificially. Again, Stott writes, love is the final quality that embraces the preceding four and the crown and sum of all the virtues. Hundreds Perhaps thousands of times the Bible speaks of God's loving kindness, his compassion. He's slow to anger. He's merciful to all. He's abounding in loving kindness. His mercies never cease. All the things we know perhaps too well. Sacrificial love. Paul will later write in chapter 5 about husbands, love your wives, same word, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In 33 years of marriage and probably... 24 years of trying to teach marriage principles, I often tell the, the husbands, I say, listen, let's forget all the instructions to the women and forget for now everything else you're worried about that the New Testament says about marriage. Just focus on one thing. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Stop right there. Christ died for his church. He didn't blame her. He didn't complain about her on the cross. He didn't say, God, give me another church that loves me. He said, forgive them. It's hard to love your wife like Christ loved the church because it means to die to self. But in all those years of my own marriage as well as watching others, I will tell you this. Show me a husband who is trying, feebly and failing, no doubt, trying to love his wife sacrificially, I will show you a wife who more than likely is flourishing. 
It's the same with children. If we criticize them and nag them, they will not change. If we encourage them, they may change. It's the same in marriage. If I criticize and complain and pick at my wife, she's not going to change. She's going to get ensconced in her positions. But if I love her and I know her needs and I know her wants and I ask her a thousand times, what do you want? What do you need? What are we going to do in life? What's the next chapter? How do we want to live this when our kids are finally away from us? How do we want to enjoy life together? Always working on those questions. That's my role as the initiator in the marriage. Leadership is initiation. And you're initiating, you're asking, you're asking. And yes, she's going to hurt your feelings. And yes, she's going to say snippy things. And yes, she's going to whatever. Get over it. You're a male of the species. And the way God's designed you is to be an initiative-taking leader who sacrificially loves. Show me a husband who begins to get this and I'll show you a marriage with hope. When we position ourselves and get away. The same is applying here when Paul crowns this list, as Stott says, in love. We do these things in love. Love means i got to put somebody else in front of me. And i got to do it lovingly. Not just, oh, I love you. Peter O'Brien writes, The believer bears with one another's weaknesses and failures. In the midst of tensions and conflicts, they show a lifestyle that is consistent with the divine calling. This kind of behavior can only spring from God's love. Living worthy of our calling means that we love. Well, this walking worthy has some results. Look at verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as also we were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The manner in which we live this worthy calling, we have five attitudes we've just looked at. We might summarize them. We live loving others, patiently, humbly, bearing with them kindly, now we're moving into the result of that is unity. Now, even a casual reader can't miss the sevenfold repetition of the word one. It's a long study. It's a deep study. I'm going to give you a very quick overview of it. One body is the one church. And that day, Jew and Gentile, we might compare it to racially tense groups today that hate each other. The Jew and the Gentile were reconciled. That was the church the time when Paul's penning this. We're one spirit. The spirit of the person of Christ indwells the believer individually in this room. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit is your permanent roommate. And because of that, we have a connection, one spirit that we could not have any other way. One hope is the hope of our salvation. That a person who's trusted Christ, who's indwelled by a spirit, hopes in a salvation. Fourth, one Lord. There's only one head of the church. Fifth, one faith. That we placed our faith in Christ, not faith in faith. We placed our faith in the person of Christ. That's the one faith, one baptism. Could be wet, could be dry. I kind of lean a little bit toward wet here because a water baptism is what identifies you publicly and makes you part of a community visibly in a local church, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Then we have the fourfold use of all. This passage, keep in mind, applies to believers. This is a 
Paul's writing churches in Ephesus, believers in Ephesus. Now, I don't want to get too uh, deep for you here, but the theological glue in this passage is the Trinitarian doctrine. The Spirit, the Lord, and God and Father are mentioned. One, one, one. And Paul's sevenfold use and the fourfold use of all, study this on your own, it's a rich study, is talking about the Trinitarian Godhead making unity. Think of it very simply. Christ obeyed his Father to come and live, die, be buried, and resurrected to provide a salvation substitution for you and me. When he ascends to heaven, he sends the paracleto, his spirit, who indwells you and me. He says, I must go to the Father. He had to return. The disciples wanted him to stay. He's got to go to the Father so that he can send the helper who's going to indwell all believers so that all can be indwelt by God's spirit permanently as a fulfillment of the new covenant. So what do you have? The Trinitarian doctrine is required for salvation. God the Father has to send His Son. His Son has to be perfectly obedient to the point of death. His Son has to obey to even return back to glory after His resurrection so that the Father can dispatch His Spirit who will indwell the believer. A Trinitarian doctrine isn't just theology for dry people like me. It's important to understand your salvation required a Trinitarian doctrine. And the churches are growing in number that don't believe in a Trinity or give any attention to it. And yet it's all through the New Testament and referred to many times in the Old. Well, much more, but we need to land the plane. If you've ever been in sales, you know there are ways to sell things. You can sell things because you want to make money, and you can sell a product because you believe in a product. I learned this in multiple jobs I have. When I was 17, I worked at a backpacking, kayaking, uh, mountaineering store. It was two owners, two very high-end stores. There were no REIs in those days. This is before, before clothing was North Face. This is when equipment was North Face. Uh, they didn't have clothing lines. They had free T-shirts. But in those days, they made mountaineering and climbing equipment. And these very high-end stores were in very high-end malls. And believe it or not, 17, I was a store manager. Huh? And I was a good salesperson because I used the stuff. I was an avid climber, avid backpacker, avid uh, kayaker. And so I could, I could sell this stuff. And the owner boss came to me after a while and he said, Michael, you're a great salesman, but you only sell three lines. I said, well, that's because they're the best. And he laughed and gave me some lessons. After all, I was only 17. He said, you got to sell the whole inventory. We can't just sell these three lines. I got inventory here. We got to move. I said, yeah, but that stuff's not any good. He goes, I'm employing you to sell all of it. Okay, I got the picture. But I still like these three better. Selling because I believe in something versus selling because you got to make money. And that applies to all of life, not just sales. Later on, I would be in companies where I was representing that company. I worked for the government for the year in East Texas. And when I went somewhere, I represented the Deep East Texas Council of Governments. And I spoke for them. Later, I would become a boss, if you will, and I would hire people. And when you hire someone, they are what? They are sales reps. They are representing you when they go out on the street. If you employ people, they're representing you with their work, their attitude, their trade, their skill. So a local church, when we evaluate and hire people, we want them to represent Christ first and foremost, but we want them to represent fellowship too. 
From the learning center greeting to the telephone greeting to the email response, we want them to smile and say, how can I serve you? How can I help you? I'm here to minister to you. If they can't do that and we can't train them to do that, we'll let them go. Because they're representing the church of Jesus Christ. And we want it to be done in a certain way to represent who we serve, who we stand for. I mean, who wants to deal with a curmudgeon problem person in any place in life? Much less a church. You want people who are representing you well. How much more you and me as representing the king? A little baby was born last week. So I heard a royal baby. I watched about 1.2 minutes total of that coverage. I'm glad for the young couple. I'm very conflicted for the boy. What a life he will have. What an unreal life he will have. Isn't it funny the media and everybody called it the royal baby? not the royal fetus. That one's going to be a king. Culture's funny. You have a real king. You have a sovereign, eternal king that sent his one and only son, the eternal king, to live, to die for your sins and mine, to be buried to confirm his death and resurrected to give us life. And any and all who believe in him are adopted. We're illegitimate, throwaway children that somebody adopted and put us into royalty. Eternal royalty, not a faux royalty, not a fake royalty. Not a royalty until the next boy dies and the next one we wait for comes along. But a real king a real sovereign. Hard to keep in perspective, isn't it? The Tomb Guard Sentinels are one of the oldest, most prestigious honor guards in the world. The United States Arlington Cemetery has what's known as the Tomb of the Unknowns. It used to be called the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, but it was changed years ago because there are more than one body remains in that tomb. So it's the Tomb of the Unknowns. The Tomb Guard Sentinels are a prestigious group. I encourage you to read about them sometime. What they go through to not only become a Tomb Guard Sentinel, but once they're in that uh, guard, what it is required to stay in it. Uh, the detail and precision with those men and women train is unparalleled in any branch of service. It is an honor guard situation, but these men and women, 24-7, 365, guard the Tomb of the Unknowns. And if you've ever been there, you should go there. Uh, you'll see the changing, the, mar the 31 steps, if I remember correctly, they walk back and forth. They're inspected by their sergeant when they show up. Their weapons inspected, their clothing inspected. I've heard it takes as long as two hours to get dressed, and they'll spend an average of 30 minutes to an hour a day just working on their shoes. Everything's got to be perfect before they go outside. They have a creed they memorize, and this is the Tomb Guard Sentinel's Creed. My dedication to this sacred duty is total and wholehearted. In the responsibility bestowed on me, never will I falter. And with dignity and perseverance, my standard will remain perfection. 
Through the years of diligence and praise and the discomfort of elements, I will walk my tour in humble reverence to the best of my ability. It is he, meaning the remains, it is he who commands the respect. I protect his bravery that made us so proud. Surrounding by well-meaning crowds by day, alone in the thoughtful peace of night. This soldier, the one entombed, this soldier will in honored glory rest under my eternal vigilance. Over a box of dead men's bones? When you and I serve a living king? Who of us would say, my standard will remain perfection in this honored and sacred duty? You represent Christ among us into a world. So do I. We serve a king. Not a prince, not a name, not an office. We serve a king, a real king. And he loves you. And he adopted you and pulled you into his family. And he made you an heir. A wise believer will walk in a manner worthy to that with which he has been called. Father, help us to be the kind of men and women who walk in such a way to see fellowship transformed individually and corporately as men and women who know we serve a king, not an elected or appointed official, but one who's reigned forever and ever and ever. Help us as we go from here, not to dismiss your word or put it out of hand, but may it come to mind and be cemented in our hearts and minds that we walk in a manner worthy of the way you call us. We love you, Lord Jesus, as always. Help us to love you well. We pray in Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Have a phenomenal week.